Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, and 12-28. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Verse 12. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when he says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. In the adventure motorcycle documentary, Long Way Round, actor Ewan McGregor of Star Wars fame tells of a life-changing decision that he and his riding partner, Charlie Borman, made while they were in Mongolia. They were making their way around the world by motorcycle and enjoying the beauty of Mongolia, but they were struggling with the off-road riding. They were only progressing 20 miles a day in that portion of the country, and they needed to get to Ulaanbaatar, which is a thousand miles away. They were far behind schedule. And they were considering whether the suffering was worth it. And so at one point, they reached a fork in the road, literally. They could either continue straight, suffering towards Ulaanbaatar, or they could take this highway that took them into Russia in a day, and they could zoom across the continent via Russia. But they would miss an opportunity in Ulaanbaatar. I'll let you, they, they decided to go straight, towards Ulaanbaatar, and I'll let him finish the story here. Well, we did carry on, and we did get to Ulaanbaatar, and Charlie and I went to a street shelter for children. And we were both massively moved by it. 
Nothing could have prepared me for how, how young the children were there. There was girls there that were two years old. This little one here, who was found two weeks ago, will only talk to this girl here. And they seem to have found some bond together. We left that day, but I couldn't stop thinking about that little girl. It took nearly two years, but eventually we adopted Jamian. So it's like one of those decisions in life where you think, I can look back on that and go, that would have, that would have changed everything, you know, if we'd done that. <laughs> and if we'd turned left, it would have met her, you know? So that's pretty amazing. <laughs> Sorry. But it's a big moment, it's a big moment, funny. You know, I wonder if that fork would even be worth considering if he knew where that road in Mongolia ended. You see, knowing the end of the story changes everything. How would the decisions that you may wrestle with in your present life change if you were assured of the end of the story? The things that you think are so important for your happiness and for your comfort wouldn't seem that important anymore. The sacrifices you make may not actually seem like sacrifices if we could look back on them from the end of the journey. The Christian faith offers something unique amongst world religions and spiritualities. We know the end of the story, and it's with this assurance that Christ's followers experience something now in this present life that too is unique and unwavering hope. You know, today as we conclude the First Corinthians series, we look to the grounds for this hope. It's in the resurrection of Jesus. And for many of us who have known Jesus, Christ's resurrection kind of rolls off our tongues like thanksgiving and Black Friday sales and Christmas carols. It's something we just expect everyone to know and experience. But if we pause and consider the implications, we find that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything, not just in the future, but also in the present. And if you're listening and this idea of the resurrection after death in this life lies in the realm of fiction and fantasy, then you're not alone. You see, the Corinthian church, to whom Paul writes, also has many skeptics. So I invite you to listen in on this conversation about why the resurrection matters not only to Christ followers, but for all of creation. So we're going to talk through it in three phases. Resurrection in the gospel, resurrection in heaven, and resurrection in our bodies. Now, Paul opens up in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 and 2, say, with a reminder of the gospel that is preached to them. The gospel is something that is communicated with words. See, what are words? Words delineate something that is from something that is not. And the gospel is not primarily a feeling or not an experience of the divine. It is a new reality grounded in historical facts of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And the gospel here is what Paul refers to in verse 3 as a matter of first importance. It's the first priority. It's the core of the Christian faith. In fact, it's what how Paul frames the entire letter of the Corinthians, uh, to the Corinthians. He starts in chapter 1 with this hymn to the cross, saying, I preach the cross of Christ. We preach Christ crucified. It's coming up on the screen, on the image here, I think. And, and, uh, and then he says, I proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. And continues at the end, here in this chapter, on the, this hymn to the resurrection. Christ is preached and is raised from the dead. And, Christ, and now Christ has been raised from the dead. Before he speaks to all of the issues that we've covered in this series, issues of division, issues of ethics, issues of community, of worship, and of walking in love 
in this letter to the Corinthians. He begins the letter with the crucifixion in chapter 1, and he ends the letter with the resurrection. In other words, what Paul is doing is saying that talking about any other aspect of God's character, any other part of God's kingdom, and what it means to be God's people without getting these two historical bookends misses the point. And like some of the Christians failing to get to the resurrection of Christ and of God's people in this life to come, in this life to come, makes Paul's preaching useless. And so is our faith, as Paul says in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's how core, critical the resurrection is to the Christian faith. Now, some of us who have experienced, uh, grew up in the church, might hear the word gospel and associate with a particular expression of Christian witness. The gospel might be the answer to questions like, are you born again? Or do you know where you're going to go when you die? Will you be in heaven or will you be in hell? And these are certainly biblical and truthful questions to consider, but they often fail to reflect the full breadth of what Jesus came to demonstrate. The gospel that Paul refers to here is grounded in Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. It's not just merely believing that Jesus died so that you can be born again, so that you can go to heaven with an eternal bucket of lollipops to hang out with cute babies. And typically they're just white babies on the clouds. So whose idea of the afterlife is that? We'll get to that in a moment. Instead, the gospel here is literally the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, a.k.a. the anointed rescuer. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Jesus is God's Messiah and the world's true Lord. Jesus is the true leader of the world that has the character, that has the credentials, and has the ability to set all the broken things wrong in this world aright. Jesus' resurrection is proof that all that is wrong in this world can and will be set right. Where death is the result of sin and the trajectory of all that is broken in this world, Christ's resurrection demonstrates that there is a new way of living. In verse 15 and 16, for Paul reminds us that believing in the resurrection, uh, uh, that that the resurrection is possible is a requirement for believing in Jesus' resurrection. Without the resurrection, our faith is futile. It's just bad news. And he continues to say in verse 19 that we are of all people to be most pitied. The implication here is that you can't just take the life of Jesus and place it in the category of inspiring fiction to live a better and, uh, and more loving life. He's not just a good person and a wise teacher. He's not just some contemplative mystic to experience a deeper spirituality. He is not just a model for anti, a role model for anti-establishment initiatives. And neither is he the kind of leader who is interested in setting up a Christian political government. You see, Jesus comes to change the fabric of creation and the trajectory of history through the resurrection. And that's why the gospel is good news. It's not just a good suggestion. It's not just a good story. It's good news that changes the world. Esteemed New Testament historian N.T. Wright summarizes with this quote, Christianity, you see, isn't a set of ideas. It isn't a path of spirituality. It isn't a rule of life. It isn't a political agenda. It includes and gives energy to all those things, but at its very heart, it is something different. It is good news about an event that has happened in the world which, and, and because of which the world can never be the same again. And those who believe it and live by it will, thank God, never be the same again either. 
For Paul, understanding the gospel, the matter of first importance is what sorts out all the other issues that the Corinthian church faced. In chapter 6, the resurrection informs sexual morality, saying, God will raise your body to new life as he raised Jesus's. So you, who you are and what you do with your present body matters. In chapter 11, the resurrection informs the Lord's Supper. You see the meal in light of the long story? Look back to Jesus' death, but also look forward to the resurrection. In chapter 13, on this hymn to love, love is the only thing that will last into this new world that God will make. So what does resurrection have to say about the nature of life to come? And as I alluded to earlier, the life to come is far more than heaven as many of us might imagine it to be. And if you're like me, the medieval portrayals of heaven seem like images of eternal boredom. But this was not the idea of the life to come that Jesus and Paul described. When they used the word heaven, it was equated with the kingdom, the place where God reigned in all of God's fullness and where life abounds. In verse 22 and 24, Paul talks about this kingdom that will come. Israel, you see, long for a new kingdom established by this new king over the whole world. They wanted this leader to make Israel great again and to see the nations that oppressed God's people defeated. Their expectation of heaven was a point in the future when all of God's people would be raised from the dead to live in this kingdom where God fully reigned. That was their hope. To their surprise, instead of God's people being all raised at the end of history, there was this one person that got raised in the middle of history before the kingdom fully appeared. And Jesus' resurrection came after three years of his ministry, pointing out, look, this is what God's kingdom looks like. People are being made whole. Look, this is what God's kingdom looks like. People are set free and find their true dignity. Look, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. When God's word is preached, people trust in the living God. For Jews expecting the sudden turnover to God's kingdom entering heaven, they didn't expect heaven to look like that. God's kingdom appeared to be coming in two stages. Stage one began when Jesus rose from the dead, and stage two will bring its completion when Christ returns and all of God's people rise. We are living between stage one and stage two now. We're living in this overlap of this present age and the beginning of the age to come that was marked by Jesus' resurrection. It's what my preaching professor, Daryl Johnson, called living on the edge. And if you look in this image, you'll see uh, he talks about it in his book, uh, Exposition on the Book of Revelations. And you may be familiar, seeing this, you know, creation, fall, redemption, renewal. But the way he explains it is, you know, at the creation, God's fullness, everything hap is good. And then there was sin entered the world, which was the fall, and everything dropped down. And along that lower line, you have Abraham being called and Moses being given the law, and you have King David and Solomon and the pinnacle of Israel's nation. But they all don't make a single dent on that line of recovering creation back to God's full intent. Many generations later, Jesus arrives on the scene. And at the cross... And at the resurrection, it's the beginning of the beginning of the end. It's the edge of this renewal of God's creation that is taking place through God's people that will culminate when Jesus arrives a second time. So at Jesus, Christ's resurrection at the bottom of the line and um, 
the resurrection, when Christ returns at the top of the line of renewal, that's where we're living on the edge. We are living on the edge of the life to come. We are living on the edge of heaven. So when we visualize God's kingdom and we visualize heaven this way, it changes our orientation. So the question is, is when will heaven arrive? In verse 24, Paul talks about the end will come. The word used for come here in verse 24 is parousia, whose Latin counterpart is adventus. In AD 66, the Roman emperor Nero visited Corinth, and the visit of an emperor or a high-ranking official was called an adventus. It's where we get the word advent. In the Roman civil religion, the emperor was lord, and the emperor was also God. A god was coming to visit the city, so what could be more worthy of worship and praise? And Paul writes to Corinth, a Roman colony, and invokes that same praise and honor and expectation for the advent of the resurrected Christ. So as we begin Advent season next Sunday, that's what we're celebrating. We're remembering Jesus' first arrival and anticipating his second arrival, when the King of Heaven was going to set all things right again by destroying every human power, every human authority that has set itself up against God and oppressed God's people and God's creation. Now, in the midst of this, you know, contentious election, isn't that good news? Christ's resurrection speaks of a coming leader, a coming president, a coming prime minister, a coming king, CEO, that all the other presidents and prime ministers and queens and kings and CEOs will eventually submit to. In the midst of a pandemic, isn't that good news? In the midst of generations of racial and economic injustice, isn't that good news? Someone is coming to set things right. The resurrection of Jesus means that the renewal of the world is not an improbability. It's the guarantee of a certain future. You know, some Christians live in fear of the Antichrist and looking for marks of the beast and are preoccupied with identifying conspiracies because of their disappointment in worldly leaders. And it often comes from an under-realized belief in Jesus, the true king, for all eternity. And when we do that, under-realize who Jesus is, then we try to hold on to vestiges of Christian values through human government and authority structures. Or we might appeal to governing (coughs) documents to keep the government from interfering in our lives. And when these fail us, we find ourselves depressed and angry and hopeless. But there's also on the other side, some professing Christians who have too high of an expectation that our work for a just and good world must come to realization in our lifetime the moment we recognize injustice. This may come from an over-realized belief in the king of the world that Jesus came to begin since his first resurrection. We expect that our faith, combined with our perception of the wrongs in this world in light of God's kingdom, require that everything be set right immediately the moment we see something wrong. And if they aren't, we find ourselves depressed and angry. But living on the edge of heaven means that we will always be honest with the reality of sin without being crushed by that reality. Until it is done away with completely, the world, apart from God, will continue to fall away from God. And at the same time, living on the edge of heaven means that we will also be hopeful for our participation in the renewal of the world without requiring it to happen. This is good news. See, the gospel of God's kingdom is both conservative and progressive 
without demanding that the world be either conservative or progressive. It is conservative in holding on to what is true and good and loving and faithful, reflected in the character of God. And it is progressive in tearing down and renewing structures and systems and relationships that are oppressive towards God's image-bearing in humans and in the world. And the resurrection assures us that all will be made new and whole. Knowing the end of the story of history changes everything. Knowing that heaven, what heaven might be, gives us hope. It also informs how we live in the bodies that God has given us now. In the final section of 1 Corinthians 15, which we didn't have read because the entire chapter is like 58 verses, Paul points to the creation narrative of Genesis 1 to 3 when he speaks of the nature of the resurrected body. He compares the nature of two different bodies, and the NIV translate them, translates them as the natural body and as the spiritual body, as it's on the screen here below. In verse 44, that's what, what he's talking about. But misunderstanding these references to our natural and spiritual bodies leads to problems. The English translations don't adequately reflect the nuances of the Greek words. Often implied in this contrast is that this present natural body is corruptible, decaying, and doomed to die, and so it doesn't matter what happens to it. And then we have this incorruptible, non-bodily existence in heaven. And the adjectives are often heard as physical versus non-physical. But that's not what Paul is doing here. The Greek word translated as physical or natural is psyche, psyche, psychikos. Psyche, it's a compound word of the word psyche and the suffix ikos, which turns that noun into an adjective. Psychikos doesn't mean physical in the sense that we often understand it today. For Greek speakers in Paul's day, the psyche means the soul, not the physical body. They understood the psyche to be the core of a person's emotions and values and identity. And the suffix ekos describes not the material out of which things are made, but the power or the energy that animates them. So if we use cars as an example, we can compare cars that are built out of steel versus cars that are built out of, material, uh, out of carbon fiber. Or we can compare cars that are animated or energized by com gas gasoline combustion, or we can look at cars that are energized or driven by electricity. They are two different, completely different categories. And Paul here is talking about this present body is animated by the human psyche, but the future body is animated by um, God's pneuma, pneumatikos, psychikos and pneumatikos. God, it's animated by God's breath of new life, the same energizing power of God's new creation. So all of this put together means that we can't treat the future life as some disembodied, disconnected experience from the present life in a non-bodily heaven. The person we become now matters. And we can't just say, well, the world has fallen, and so, my, so is my human experience, so let me just live my life, and God will renew it all in the end. Actually, the imperishable parts of you that are formed in Christ-likeness in this present life will be gloriously reaffirmed in the future life. So live for that future life now. It's not done in vain. Our present human experience that is animated and energized by our ego or by our pride 
or by domination or anger or by coercion and insecurity and shame, all of those things that move our lives forward, those are going to be done away with. That's psychikos. But even more, our human experience now that is animated by God's spirit, pneumatikos, leads to a new life that evermore reflects God's character. And that's going to continue into the future. And so while we certainly must wrestle with ethics and morals and character in this life, Paul is saying that our present circumstances must be informed with our future selves in mind. Put another way, don't get stuck trying to figure out what we're allowed to do now and what we're not allowed to do now. Consider how to get, enjoy more of our future selves and let that speak into our present life. You know, just as God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, to rule wisely over God's creation, our future bodies will continue in that work, to rule wisely over God's new world. And unfortunately, to some of you, there will actually be work to be done in heaven, except it will be full of joy. We will find such joy in our work. All the skills and all the talents that we have put to serve God in this present life, and perhaps even those interests that we had to give up because they conflicted with our vocation, whether it's a paid work or whether it's raising our children, all of those things will be enhanced and ennobled and given back to us in the, to the praise of God's glory. So what you do now for God's purposes and glory matters. And that's why Paul concludes the whole letter in verse 58 saying, what you do in the present, including working hard for the gospel, is not wasted. It will be completed and have its fulfillment in God's future. When you raise your children, and you might miss career opportunities, when you sacrifice joys and skills to care for a loved one, when you mentor a youth in the ways of Jesus, when you invest in a family that is at risk through fostering, when you attend to a child learning in a learning lab, when you speak with dignity to a homeless person, or when you work for racial justice. You see, we all want to measure that our efforts have a measurable and observable outcome in this life. But the resurrection means that we don't have to. They are not done in vain if they are done in faithfulness to Jesus. They will be completed, and we will enjoy the reward of seeing that impact we made in God's future. So in light of the resurrection, the key question for us in this life isn't, are you going to heaven when you die? But what role will you play in the future life, both now and then? You know, N.T. Wright asks, are you going to worship God and discover what it means to become fully and gloriously human, reflecting his powerful, healing, transformative love in the world? Or are you going to worship the world as it is, boasting in your corruptible humanness by gaining power or pleasure from forces within the world, but merely contributing to your own dehumanization and further corruption of the world? So stand firm as Paul says. Jesus' resurrection matters. Your future life matters. And because your future life matters, your present life and your work matter. So live for the end. Live in light of the resurrection. And may it be so for your joy and for God's glory. Amen.